I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is the poet Liz All. She is from nowadays Plymouth, New Hampshire. After a much-traveled youth, she is uh, widely published, the author of numerous books, poems nominated for pushcart prizes, that sort of thing. And her most recent book is called Beating the Bounds. And we're going to start with that because it's a phrase I certainly never heard of until I met her. Uh, when we read together last February in Massachusetts. And uh, that's what I want to say. Liz, What tell us what Beating the Bounds is. So Beating the Bounds uh, traces its origins back to medieval times. And essentially it was a, an annual tradition, definitely a blending of what we now mostly separate as church and state. The, uh, it was literally walking the boundaries of your parish or town just sort of make sure no one had built anything on your side or just to kind of inspect the area. And it was, you know, part civic duty, part sort of religious ritual kind of. Uh, and so I found that fascinating. And I uh, learned that uh, from a New Hampshire public radio story, actually, that people still do this in New Hampshire um, sort of recreationally. And actually it's still New Hampshire state law um, New Hampshire state law requires um, what's called perambulation also is another name for beating the bounds. Uh, New Hampshire's towns are completely out of compliance with this law right now, but we've kept it on the books, I guess, for nostalgic reasons, maybe. Um, would you like to hear the poem? Yes, definitely. But here's, here's the actual state statute uh, from that I'm just quoting from here before I'll start the poem. The lines between the towns in this state shall be perambulated and the marks and bounds renewed once in every seven years forever by the selectmen of the towns or by such persons as they shall in writing appoint for that purpose. So this is beating the bounds. Where once the long dead red oak held the line, announced the town's edge, a stone marker. Where a dairy barn once asserted itself, keeper of the borderlands, a pile of boards riddled with the tunnels of insects. There are laws, there are numbers. There's a line you must perambulate, must practice like cursive's first signature. You must not merely walk, but beat these bounds, like rugs hung outdoors for a thorough spring cleaning, or like bushes thrashed to flush creatures or ideas from beneath, or like the well-tempered shield of your own scarred heart. At ascension, in a medieval parish, the priest would gather a small group and lead them on a ritual walk along the town's entire border to plod the line between us and them into communal consciousness. Young boys were always brought along to ensure the endurance of the memory past the boundaries of decades and death. Given willow boughs, the boys beat the border markers, but also were sometimes whipped themselves or thrown against the boundary stones for a visceral embodied mnemonic. Where does the body end, the town begin? Will you walk the line true, right through the pond, the swamp, the bull's bright field littered with jagged crumbs of glacial granite? 
Sometimes you must tend the scar where your town broke into two towns. You must walk the path you think you know again to see how, again, you don't fully know it. How the border changes, how you change, even though the printed maps assert permanence with their typographic certainties, their precision of scale, their tidy legends. You must come for it, this line that spells home. You must care for it, tend it as if it were a friendship or a garden or a habit of prayer. Beat the bounds every seven years, not often enough to trample a path that will be there waiting for you next time, but still you imagine it could be so. That brief delusion, those moments when you're sure your muscles remember and you're looking for what's not quite there. No path visible, just enough dots to connect in the second growth archipelago. This broken tree to that shard of stone wall, from remnant to remnant, marker to marker, relearning, touch by touch, the forgotten skin of a loved body miraculously returned. I think of the long dead stars and their slowpoke light trickling across the void, the lines we conjure between them so they'll make sense to us, becoming Ursa, Lyra, and so, of course, we trace the contours of the terrestrial constellations, the sets of lines we name parish, town, body, all synonyms for home. We follow the trailing incense of the priest's prayer, and our bodies are the very bounds we beat, the only evidence that has a chance at lasting until the next perambulation. The line starts disappearing right after we tread it into the grass. The signature unsigns itself every seven years forever. I like the way the, you know, you're not doing it frequently enough to create a path that will be there next time. Yeah. So it's always original, original experience. Yeah. Are you, yeah, it's, it's, it's maybe vaguely familiar, but just when you think you've got it nailed, it's something's changed, something's different. Yeah, that was you had something in about the thing you think you know, but you don't quite know, hmm. and that is that is just very very interesting. Well, that's a good one. I, I love it when poetry gives you a piece of of uh, some kind of culture that you don't know anything about. I love it when public radio gives you a big gift in the form of a <laughs> metaphor that I finally helps me figure out the book. <laughs> Yeah, that was very cool too. <laughs> Thank you, uh, New Hampshire PR, right? That's right, that's right. That is very cool. Hey, here's a question. Now, you, you teach at uh, Plymouth State University there in Plymouth, New Hampshire. Yes. And I always like to ask people who teach, uh, tell me something important that you tell students about how to write a poem. Uh, like something that kind of stands out. What are your things you like to harp on, maybe? Um, or, uh, be, be open to the possibilities that is um uh it's it's nice to have a plan i love a plan um but i think that the only reason to sort of compose the first draft is kind of to get to the next draft and and that drafting is a is a process of discovery so this idea of surprise this idea that the writing itself will help you understand what you want to write about and being open to that being attentive to that 
cultivating whatever it is that allows for that is, is something I try and emphasize with students. Even as I'm giving them assignments with all sorts of sort of prescriptive requirements, um, <laughs> I, I want to say that <laughs> none of us can say, even with all these prescriptive requirements, what it is that's going to come out the other end of this or where even the other end of this is. Um, and that's, a, that's another thing I tell them, too, is that, you know, a semester is an artificial boundary and a semester is just this package we put your education yeah. in that the poem doesn't really care about the semester. So it may not be done. There you go. You can work on it next semester and yeah. next year, yeah. the rest of your life. Exactly. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. The idea of, I love, I love this idea. I remember the first time I, I heard this idea, like reading it somewhere about creativity and not quite getting it. And then later getting it about how the work of art speaks back to you and you're in dialogue there. Uh, figuring out what to do next or mm -hmm. what decisions to make, where to go. And I, I love that concept because it's so true. Right. And, a, series, a series of decisions, really, uh, yeah. is so much about what art making is. Yeah. And not having it all decided ahead of time because that, right. that doesn't work because there's new information coming in all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Had to get that in there. I always like to do that. Anybody who teaches, I want to hear one of your big precepts. I love talking about teaching and I love teaching and it's still after having done it for over 20 years, I just, it still has surprises for me, which I'm so grateful for. I feel so lucky. Yeah. You know, well, again, you don't know what's going to happen. It's like with the poem. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you kind of planned. It's a syllabus, but. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I tweak it every semester, but every semester new students show up, individual new students. I do that. <laughs> And they surprise me all the time. Cool. Well, let's hear another poem. Sure. So I moved to New Hampshire uh, about 18 years ago after an itinerant life as a Navy brat and then grad student. Um, and so one of the themes of the book is this idea of home and sort of where do I belong? And, and you know, moving, <laughs> moving to somewhere in northern New England in general, you know, this is an old place. And some people I know who've lived here have lived here for generations and generations. And so anyhow, I'm, I'm by, by some accounts, I'm even though I've never lived anywhere this long in my life, I'm still not from here. This is a villanelle called Woman From Away. In the end, however long I stay, however many neighbors I can claim, I'll always be the woman from away, a country south and north and west of here, from which I and flatlanders like me came uninvited and never left. I stayed in Holderness, where tourists come to play and natives call them by a nasty name, but I'll always be a woman from away, a citizen of not from here. I say Navy brat when asked my hometown's name. We'd move along after a two-year stay. Sometimes I miss it more than I can say, an ache for no place, rattling its chain, <laughs> me to come back away. I'm never quite at home on old home day. My native inclination is to stray, so it doesn't matter much how long I stay. I've always been a woman from away. I, I hear that that's the way it is. It doesn't seem as bad as I've been told since we moved to Vermont a couple of years ago. Um, there, 
I guess there are enough other immigrants yeah. here or something that's kind of diffused that down a little bit. But definitely the old timers are different. And I certainly think New Englanders have a have an, there's an unfair assessment of New Englanders or stereotype as, as being sort of cold and unapproachable. And I just, I don't think it's true. Yeah. But there there is definitely a sense of history here that's tied up in family and genealogy and heritage. It's kind of intimidating if you're not from here. You can't do anything about it. Nope. Well, before we came on, you mentioned uh, the benefits of living outside of the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, being a minority and being different. You want to say a little something about that? Because it's it's you and that's what's in your poetry, you know? Well, I think for, for a long time, you know, before I landed in New Hampshire and stayed here, you know, past my seven-year expiration date, um, my whole, like, relationship to poetry, I hadn't realized this, a lot of it was contingent on my perspective as an outsider, as someone who was new, as someone mm -hmm. who was sort of speaking about place. So I would consider myself a poet of place, but, but from the perspective of, of the outsider. And I hadn't realized how how ubiquitous that was in my work. It was like my work's worldview until I started feeling less like an outsider here after I'd you know been here ten years. and it was it was strange at first because I didn't know how to write about being from a place. <laughs> and so I yeah. think that's that's definitely an impact of of you know moving every two or three years when I was growing up. Um, and so that was interesting just as a, as a writer and a human being, but also just so grateful for having had a chance to live um, in different countries to see the United States from the perspective of, of another country is fantastic. I mean, just perspective. It just gives you a more global perspective um, to, to be in a, a minority um, overseas, to be in a linguistic minority, to be in a racial or ethnic minority, I think is a great benefit a great gift um just as a young growing up person yeah. so i really it was there were some times when i was a teenager when it was a little tougher than others moving all the time but you know things are going to be tough for you as a teenager no matter where yeah. you are because you're a teenager and you're momentarily insane um, yeah so i i'm i'm grateful for that upbringing i'm grateful and it, of course it was a peacetime military more or less upbringing so yeah. that's, that would be very different than than being raised in wartime and the little taste of it i got was my family lived in Bianchin laos um for a couple years um until may 1975 when we had to leave very quickly as um, some of the last americans in southeast asia at that time now that you're in one place do you travel much or more, I don't know. Not as much as I used to, and I don't feel the urge so much to. I'm, mm -hmm. to me, I'm, st I'm still exploring the exotic new realm of one place. Um, my, my uh, mother and brother live out in Washington State, so I, I travel out there a couple times a year. I have been to all fifty states, um, oh. and I do like, I love road tripping. Um, I like I like taking a trip on the road because I like seeing the way things change over time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, but I don't have the travel bug. I think I'm kind of maybe turning into a little bit of a homebody. 
I find myself so interested in this new environment I'm living in that yeah. my, my travel urge is, is diminished. It's coming back a little bit after two and a half years, but still pretty low compared to what it had been. Yeah, it's, I've been exploring the new environment of not being new. <laughs> quite enjoying that. So the holidays are upon us, which may mean mm -hmm. some folks have some house guests. Um, and this is a, a poem about, about, sort of about house guests. Um, uh, the poems in the second section of the book are sort of domestic in their concerns. And anyway, this is called Guests. The kindnesses we often forget for ourselves are summoned for the house guest. Fresh, crisp bedsheets, a batch of cookies, gleaming mirrors. The thermostat is nudged two degrees above the Yankee standard and the dining table cleared for dining. Entertainments are brought out, a game of dice, a thousand piece puzzle, the photo albums from when we were in school, a trip to the winter farmer's market. All of this we could have any time we wanted without too much labor, but no, for us, the toothpaste specked mirror, the stale saltines, the Sundays unaccounted for, the piled up chores, the evenings in front of our screens, in this way, then, we're also visitors, admiring guests of ourselves. That was a great choice. The details of that are just, just a the, the toothpaste speckled mirror. <laughs> That's why it's so good. You really got the detail nudging the thermostat. It's just, it's right there. And really, I mean, don't you ever think that? Like, we could live like this all the time. <laughs> I could have a puzzle. I could go to make, the farmer's market. Make more cookies. Yeah. Make more cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, this is one of those things. When you were reading it, I thought I could hear the smile in your voice. <laughs> That's the way it sounded to me. <laughs> and I'm looking at your face on the screen, and I heard more of a smile in your voice. It was just really quite delightful. And that poem was just a true expression of how people do things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, it, nothing satisfies me more than than getting a sense that someone has connected to something that I've read to them or that they've read by me. That really satisfies me profoundly, which is so different from when I first came to writing as a young person, mainly drawn by the fact that it was something I could do by myself. And it was something then later that I did that made my teachers and parents say nice things about me. But But now for me, writing is so social. Um, it's about connecting with other people. Yeah. Somebody comes up and says, I felt that way. <laughs> yeah. I got it. Yeah. That happened to me. And you go, Whoa. Okay. That's yeah. good. That's yeah. really nice. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you, you have a, you have a topical poem, I believe. Ew, it's, um, that you mentioned it had, turns out to be topical just because of the calendar. <laughs> yeah. So this one's not from this book. It's from a collection of poems I've been working on for over 20 years. Um, inspired by the U.S. space program, actually. And um, on Friday, the solstice, actually, it will mark the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 8, which was the first 
uh, first Apollo mission out to the moon. And they didn't land on the moon until Apollo 11. This was just to see, can we get all the stuff out there? Can we go mm -hmm. around the dark side of the moon without getting lost in space? And can we come back and land safely? And it all went pretty fabulously. And the uh, some people consider this actually the most historically significant, even more significant than mm -hmm. landing on the moon, Apollo missions. And this poem mm -hmm. sort of touches on, on why. Um, a famous image of the earth that was taken um, on this uh, by, by uh, one of the astronauts, Bill Anders, um, during this mission. So this is titled Image Number 14-2383, Apollo 8. Sometimes the best laid mission plan, tidy and typed in carbon triplicate, will miss something even with the laser vision of all those eyes. Sometimes the mission itself shifts as it unfolds, as you're breathless in the thrill of hitting goals no one had thought to set down on paper. For instance, if you're prepping to be the first guys to fly out to the moon, not land on it, just everything but, you'll have studied your lunar maps, the photographs snapped by the machines sent in advance, who knew only to obey the crude code with which they were programmed. And NASA will have outfitted you with all the best cameras and lenses they could find, and a list such a list of targets to capture in color and black and white, rills, craters, debris fields, potential landing sites, boulders, valleys, constellations. But your exhaustive and specific list will omit one simple thing, and you won't realize it until on the third lunar orbit, freshly trimmed from an ellipse to a circle and heads up for the first time, you see the earth rising improbably, fantastically from beneath the moon's horizon. You're so well trained that your initial impulse is to stick to mission, stick to ticking off that list everybody agreed on back there on the ground, but the earth, the earth is coming up over the moon, rising like the moon, like the sun, like, like nothing you have a metaphor for. You are so well-trained that you can still reach just past the mission-bound edges of that training and snap the color photographs, not on the checklist, the photographs no one knew would need to be taken, the now ubiquitous whole earth blue and borderless and feathered with clouds, dangling in the void, our precariousness, our us-ness, no longer an abstraction. Who knows what lunar ravine, what highlands or nameless Mariah lost their place in the queue so that everything we knew could shift into new focus. So we could be remade, albeit briefly, by just a glance at this first true likeness of ourselves. Ooh, ooh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and this will be in the next book, huh? Or um, in a future book. <laughs> yes, yes, I hope so. Um, right. And as I was reading it, I was just thinking, like, that's 
that connects to what we were talking about in terms of poetry being able to surprise you. Like you, you make a plan, but you can't plan for the things you would never have thought of. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, you know, the, it was the most important photo. They were the most important photographs taken on this mission and no one had planned to take them. At all. Have to stay mindful to the options. Right, right. Big word of the day, but truly, wow, that's great. Yeah. Okay, well, Liz, this has been wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you could be with us here all the way from Plymouth, New Hampshire. I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. You are listening to Poetry Spoken Here. Now I'd like to take a look at Jim Harrison's final book. Published by Copper Canyon Press, it's Dead Man's Float. It was published in 2016, two months before Jim died. He was found at his desk with a handwritten draft of an unfinished poem in front of him. His estate gave permission for Copper Canyon to issue another edition of Dead Man's Float that includes Jim's final poem fragment. Harrison is probably best known for his fiction, novels and novellas, particularly Legend of the Fall, which was made into a popular movie. But poetry was extremely important to him, and he wrote it throughout his writing career. As he says, in poetry, our motives are utterly similar to those who made cave paintings and petroglyphs. Poetry is language the soul would speak, if you taught your soul to speak. As usual, I'm going to take the approach as more of an appreciation than a critical review. I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't like it and think it's something that you might like. And so I want to call it to your attention and just highlight a few of the things that you'll find in it and see what you think. Again, published by Copper Canyon Press. Here's a bit from the title poem, Dead Man's Float. You you may recall that a dead man's float is something that a swimmer does when he's uh, pretty far out, pretty exhausted, and maybe afraid he won't make it to shore. So you go into this minimal uh, energy expenditure of the dead man's float. Here are some parts of Jim's poem, Dead Man's Float. He was, at this point, uh, having trouble with painful shingles, uh, numerous operations, and his doctor said he was just exhausted from writing too much and should try to take a break. But Jim said he didn't know how, and then the poem. Suddenly, I remembered learning the Dead Man's Float in Boy Scout swimming lessons, and a light went off. That's what I'll do to rest up. The dead man's float without water. I got in bed and conjured the feeling of floating and recalled my last dead man's float about a mile out in the ocean east of Key West when I tired from too much swimming ambition. And from that experience, he obviously survived, uh, made it to shore, says he dozed off and a pretty girl stopped and said, are you okay? And he said, I'm never okay. And uh, went on to... Um, admire this beautiful young lady he concludes the poem after a few other lines saying you know if you need me now i'm here along the mexican border dead man floating so dead man's float title poem 
Now, this next poem, I'm, I'm going to read it in its entirety because it says so much, I think, about Jim's view. He's a very interesting poet. I always feel like he's one of these poets that there's that surface right there as if you're just getting something told to you, but there's always something deeper and more mysterious going on. And it seems that Jim was always trying to connect with something cosmic. At least that's the way I always felt about it when I read his his wonderful poetry. This poem is called Big Issues. All these planted flowers I stare at every day have become part of my brain. Outside the studio door, twelve poppies, seven peonies. The number changes nearly every day. Are they doing damage, keeping me from all the big issues? Of course, but the big issues don't need me. The surrounding mountains are a real big issue. To them, my steps are soft as a moth's. There are too many people for me to be a big issue. I'm more on the level of a crow. The 16 poppies and 8 peonies are getting in the way of the United Nations. Existentialism and masculinity. These big issues all fade in the face of beauty. I think that last bit really says a lot about his views. The big issues all fade in the face of beauty. And now a few lines from from the final poem. This was on the desk, handwritten, when when Jim Harrison died. And it, it concludes with a rather interesting statement. And he was always very in tune with nature. And uh, certainly, well, he concludes the poem saying... The earth used to be God's body, but he took too many wounds and abandoned it. He left us with a husk we made of the body like a wasp's nest. Man shits his pants and trashed God's body. There is no punctuation after that last word, body, and so we will just never know what else he might have said in this poem. And it's certainly sad to think we won't have more poems from him. You may be interested, you literary folks who listen to Poetry Spoken, hear that there's a project going on at Copper Canyon Press. When he died in 2016, Copper Canyon became the stewards of Jim Harrison's poetic legacy. And in 2018, the press launched a project called The Heart's Work. It's a multi-year, multi-book publishing project designed to secure and advance Jim Harrison's reputation as a poet. I'm reading them that from the back of the book that I'm using for this review. So if you're interested in learning more about that, just go to poetry at coppercanyonpress.org and, uh, and you can find out more about that. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Please join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other 
Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.